Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing the news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Jimmy Coonan. I'm a member of Carpenters and Joiners Local 314. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WART possible. Hello there, I'm Anna Ham. It's both my name and my mantra. Say it with me. Anaham, 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 Anaham. Anaham, 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 Anaham. This week, we hear a report from the recent Reproductive Rights Rally and discuss labor's participation, learn of a victory for Raven software workers, discuss get-out-the-vote efforts for union members and labor supporters, get an on-the-ground report from France with Labor Radio's Frank Emspach, share our statistic of the week, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. A National Labor Relations Board decision handed an early victory to a group of unionized quality assurance workers at Raven Software in Middleton this week. Labor Radio has the story. The National Labor Relations Board ruled on Monday that Activision Blizzard, parent company to Middleton-based subsidiary Raven Software, illegally withheld raises from a group of quality assurance workers based on their recent union activity. The company is currently in the process of negotiating a contract with 28 of the video game studio software testers, who voted to form a union in May. The union is organized under the name Game Workers Alliance and has partnered with the Communications Workers of America. The union's campaign went public at the beginning of this year, after members of the Quality Assurance Department staged a walkout in protest of the firing of 12 of their co-workers at the end of 2021. What started as a limited demonstration soon escalated into a five-week strike of the studio, despite a subsequent reorganization that eliminated the Quality Assurance Division at the company and a failed late request by Activision to cancel the election. The workers voted 19 to 3 at the end of May to form a union. Soon after the certification became official, the CWA filed a complaint to the NLRB in June, accusing the software company of a slate of unfair labor practices during the spring campaign. At the core of the filing was an allegation surrounding pay raises delivered to quality assurance testers working in other parts of the company. During the month of April, software testers at Activision Blizzard outside of Raven were offered raises that bumped up their pay to a base of $20 per hour while Raven testers did not receive the same offer. Quality assurance testers at Raven make approximately $27,000 to $69,000 a year and are among the lowest paid workers at the studio, according to pay documents the company shared during labor relations hearings in February. In the background of the ongoing organizing campaign, Activision Blizzard entered an agreement to be acquired by Microsoft for nearly $69 billion in January a deal that is still awaiting approval from international regulators before it can proceed. The union's complaint, which was amended Monday evening after the board's ruling, also alleges that the company solicited grievances from employees during the May voting period and continues to violate labor laws by keeping the studio reorganized, 
without a quality assurance division. The board has not yet concluded its investigation into the other aspects of the complaint, but the union has indicated that it's ready to keep negotiations moving. Quote, we just want the company to bargain in good faith, bargain a fair contract, and move past all this cheap and illegal behavior. Communications Workers of America Secretary-Treasurer Sarah Steffens told the Washington Post, if the workers and the company can't agree on terms, the NLRB could issue a complaint or, in the more unlikely case that the company refuses to settle, the board could prosecute the case before a federal judge. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. Labor activists are hard at work getting out the vote for the upcoming midterm election. Kevin Gunlock, the president of the South Central Federation of Labor, AFL-CIO, talks to us about how important the upcoming fall election is to labor. What's at stake for labor in this election? So a lot of things are at stake. For one, we've seen attacks on labor across the board nationally, as well as in the state. We saw the last time we had a governor that was anti-union, they stripped away the rights of public sector workers, and we still see the after effect of that. That's why we have a lot of these school district referenda because of what happened in Act 10 so that they can afford to, to pay for things locally. We saw what happened when anti-union politicians, we saw what they did when they were in power. And they stripped away the rights, like I said, of public sector workers, and then they went after private sector workers. And of course, they went after all sorts of other things that we hold dear in our communities. What about threats to democracy and the storming of the Capitol and the anti-voting legislation? That's all up in this election as well. Labor has come out against what happened at the U.S. Capitol when we had an insurrection. I, I think there's a power grab here. This is about power. And workers just want power to say something about our workplace conditions that includes safety conditions at work, but it's also about safety in our communities, being paid properly, affordable housing. And so we've seen an uptick, right? Workers are fighting back. But one of the things that we also have to do while we're organizing into unions, while we're being successful with direct actions and we're doing it strategically, we also have to keep in mind that this is a democracy. We have to preserve our democracy. They attacked unions first but we still have to be involved in these elections. What is the union doing to get out the vote right now? We're what's called canvassing. So we're door knocking, right? We're knocking on folks' doors and we're letting them know, hey, don't forget there's an election. And you'd be surprised how many people forget. And then we talk about the issues. What are issues important to them? And it just so happens that the issues that are important to people within our community, workers and, and, many, and everyone, are the same issues that unions are fighting for. And what we've endorsed our candidates for. What we're doing is reminding folks to vote. We're canvassing and we're also, what we have is a phone bank. So you can call virtually or um, from home, or you can call here from the Madison Labor Temple calling union households as well. Really easy to call member to member households. And then there's other unions also working with other organizations to get out the vote for people who aren't in unions. How can listeners find out about those and get involved? They can find out by contacting us and our staff here, they can stop off at the Madison Labor Temple anytime between 10 a.m. and 7 p.m. on a weekday. We're also going to be at the Labor Temple on Saturdays, 10 a.m. till 2. This Saturday, we're doing a canvas cookout. So we like to have some fun things. There'll be hot dogs, brats, vegetarian options, corn on the cob, things like that. And then after people go out and do their thing to make sure we get out the vote and then come back, it's really easy. You have a nice walk. You get to meet people in our communities and uh, have discussions about what's important to them, and then encourage them to vote.
And it's through the Madison Labor Temple at 1602 South Park Street. That was Kevin Gunlock of the South Central Federation of Labor. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Madison Labor Radio. Body autonomy and reproductive choice impact working women in so many ways. The Madison Abortion and Reproductive Rights Coalition, or MAARCH, is holding a rally tomorrow. March member and organizer Kim Gasper Raybuck provides details about the rally and discuss the impact of loss of body autonomy and how that impacts working women. What do you see as the biggest impact for working women with regard to the changes in the abortion laws since Dobbs? The government stripped us of our bodily autonomy, so we can't get abortions. So how are we going to go to work and feed our families? The average person who gets an abortion is already a mother. They're in their late 20s. They are generally single and living in poverty because President Clinton ended welfare. We're in desperate need of the right to control our own bodies and uh, bodily autonomy. And so you end up in this situation where you can't afford childcare and you're going to work in a low-wage job. And really, the main thing that you need is a union and the opportunity to make more than poverty wages. Do you have statistics about the number of women who actually need and seek abortions? One out of four people who is a woman or can become pregnant will need an abortion in their lifetime. Certainly 50% of workers are women. Then one out of four union members will need an abortion in their lifetime. How much influence do you think the pressure we're putting on right now will have as an impact on restoring rights? We really need to kind of go back and look at our history and think about how abortion was won, right? It was part of a fight for equality. It was part of a fight for access to contraception. You know, you had to be married in order to acquire contraception. So that's sort of where the struggle started for abortion rights. People are starting to fight back. We're starting to see protests around bodily autonomy and abortion. We'll have to become something much bigger, much stronger, much more forceful. Ultimately, we will need mass demonstrations. You know, we'll need huge numbers of people in society participating in this struggle. We've often relied upon electing politicians that will help improve conditions for reproductive rights and for working people in general. What are your thoughts on that? We got parental consent. We got 24 and 48 hour waiting periods. We got, we got, we got with that strategy. And it's really going to have to be that people start looking away from the politicians and looking towards our capacity to organize because it's going to take massive strikes like what they had in Colombia and Poland and Ireland. And this place is going to have to become ungovernable. We're not going to get Mandela Barnes as our senator and then get abortion rights. (laughs) You know, we're really in March calling for all politicians to speak up. Uh, and to invite people to things like the October 8th Women's March protest. The protests that are scheduled for tomorrow are listed as being nationwide. Can you tell us about what's happening here in Madison? 
to make it more inclusive, we're calling it the Women's and People's Rally. As you know, abortion is completely unavailable and illegal in the state of Wisconsin. So we are gathering at Library Mall for a march up the State Street to the Lady Forward. We will be having a speak out at both ends. So bring your ideas and concerns and stories and share them there. Um, that was Kim Gasper Raybuck, who is an organizer and member of March. I'm Ellen Lalazern for Labor Radio. You can join the union contingent by looking for the Labor for Abortion Rights banner at Library Mall. Again, the rally begins at Library Mall at noon tomorrow. Nurses at Mayo Health Clinic defeated an effort to remove the union. Carol Wydell has the story. The Minnesota Nurses Association announced yesterday what is believed to be the first successful defeat of anti-union efforts to remove union representation. The National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, backed by dark money from millionaires and billionaires, tries to undermine the power of workers. Nurses at Mayo Health Clinic in Lake City supported the union by a wide margin. The smaller clinic is not part of the larger unit of 15,000 nurses who held a three-day strike. Shelby Meinke, a nurse at the clinic, described how the effort began at the Mayo Health Clinic in August. I believe there's 33 nurses on our unit, give or take, and I don't know exactly how it all got started, but I know that a nurse filed a petition, um, went to staff members and asked them if they wanted more information on what Mayo could give us as our employer instead of being unionized and being represented by MNA. And um, a number of our staff wanted more information, so that's how they got the petition filed. The employer held meetings with the nurses describing the wages they could have without a union. They did hold meetings with us after the petition was filed to talk about what they could offer. They didn't give us an exact percentage on what we would get, but they did come out with a general statement saying that nobody has ever lost pay. Um, anybody who's ever deunionized has always increased in their pay, is what they said. And then a day before our vote, they announced that they were giving a 6% pay increase for the payroll for the end of the year, non-union employees. In the end, the nurses voted to stay in the union. 22 nurses voted to keep the union, and five voted to decertify. We were pretty happy with that. After the vote, the nurses were optimistic. Our contract ends at the end of the year, and we've got negotiations opening up for our contract, so we're hoping that with you know how many people showed up to back us up and vote yes to keep our union, that we'll have the same drive through negotiations, and we'll come out with better on the other end of that. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. The National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, issued a ruling late last month clarifying the use of mail ballots versus in-person elections that were put in place due to COVID-19 related conditions. The NLRB has six factors for setting up elections. Use of mail-in ballots is one of those factors the board could adopt at their discretion. 
In a recent decision based on an election held at Starbucks coffee shop in Seattle, the board representative used guidelines regarding increases in confirmed COVID-19 cases or testing positivity rates in the country where the election was to take place. The new ruling allowed regional directors the ability to order a mail-in ballot election where the Centers for Disease Control, or the CDC, determines the risk of COVID-19 transmission in a particular community is high. The board applied the ruling prospectively only. This leaves the Starbucks situation as is, and the mail-in ballots will be counted, doggone it. An employee. An employee at a plastics firm in Oshkosh filed a lawsuit with the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission. Labor Radio's Carol Weidel has the story. Oshkosh Plastics in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, violated civil rights law when it subjected a black employee to a hostile work environment because of his race. According to a lawsuit filed by the U.S. Equal Opportunities Commission, or EEOC, the company fired the worker when he opposed the harassment. According to the EEOC, the black employee worked for Lakeside from June through July 2019 as a production technician. A white co-worker subjected him to derogatory comments and threatened him with physical violence. The white co-worker also threatened that he could get the black employee fired. This alleged conduct violates Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which makes it unlawful to discriminate or terminate employees because of their race. The EEOC attempted to reach a pre-litigation settlement through its conciliation process. However, when that failed, the EEOC filed suit in U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Wisconsin. Julianne Bauman, District Director of the EEOC's Chicago District, made this statement. Quote, when one worker threatens another with violence and calls him the N-word, that clearly creates a hostile working environment. The working environment is made even worse when management is made aware of the problem but takes no action. Race harassment is a problem that the EEOC is committed to eradicating." Unquote. The EEOC advances opportunity in the workplace by enforcing federal laws prohibiting employment discrimination. More information about race discrimination is available at eeoc.gov. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Labor Radio, Frank Emsbach is in Paris, the doggone Here's is his report on a demonstration in that city. Those are some sounds from the streets of Paris, recorded last week by Labor Radio co-producer Frank Emsbach, as mass demonstrations have broken out across France opposing the policies of its neoliberal president, Emmanuel Macron. Frank spoke via Zoom a week ago yesterday from Paris and gives this rundown of the political situation there. 
today was the first of what's going to be a several month campaign, pretty much of all of the progressive forces in this country in opposition to the French government led by Macron. He won the presidency because people voted against Marie Le Pen, the right winger, but not for Macron's policies. In the meantime, since June, the left opposition has won a majority in the assembly. However, the executive is the strongest part of the government here. Frank has this analysis of Macron's proposals and the counterproposals demanded by French unions and workers in the streets. Macron is proposing an increase in the age of Social Security from 60 to 65, not really funding the public sector's need to increase their wages as a result of inflation, not really funding the base of their cost of living system here for the private sector, and in response to the energy crisis, investing in nuclear. The result is that almost the entire working class, public and private, is united against the changes in Social Security for a meaningful investment in green energy, but not nuclear, and for some kind of prime or increase to deal with the huge percentage increase in inflation here, which is around 10%, and to immediately deal with the energy crisis as France is going to experience a major shortage in electricity primarily, but other things starting in about six or eight weeks with huge increases in prices. But Paris has seen a lot of demonstrations. Frank explains why he sees these current actions as different. What's different is that the French are used to having these big demonstrations here in Paris. You have 50,000 or 100,000 people in the street, as you did today, actually. But what's different is this. One, it's happening in more cities throughout the country. And two, the private sector people are on strike. And that's different. Usually it's the public sector. But what we've seen since June is an increasing number of private sector firms. But the fact that they're out for one or two days, that's different. And what's beginning to happen is an escalation of those strikes. That was Labor Radio co-producer Frank Emsbach from Paris. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Well, ooh la la. The City College faculty and staff in Chicago have voted to authorize a potential strike. Ellen LaLuzerne has this story. The City Colleges of Chicago faculty and staff union members voted to authorize a potential strike yesterday. After nearly a week of voting, 92% of the more than 1,000 members voted to authorize a strike, according to a union news release. The vote does not necessarily mean the union members will strike. However, it allows the union's negotiating team to call for a strike if they deem it necessary. The Cook County College Teachers Union said it's been negotiating for the last year to secure a fair contract with the City Colleges of Chicago. Faculty and professional contracts expired last July. The union said it and the colleges are still far from reaching an agreement. The union president, Tony Johnston, said the vote sends a strong message from the membership that they reject the current City College's last proposal. He said, quote, We don't want to strike, but our members have made it clear that they will take the steps needed to ensure our community colleges continue to offer a quality education to the students of Chicago. The union is asking for students to have greater access to remote learning and student supports, reduced class sizes, and increased wraparound services. This is Ellen Lalazern for Labor Radio. Alabama prisoners are on strike. Greg Jabowski has this story. A massive strike continues throughout the Alabama state prison system. The strike, which began September 26th, spread by word of mouth and through social media, 
Although, due to the closed nature of the U.S. prison system, it is hard to tell which facilities are most solid and to what extent it continues. Strikers issued nine demands, including increased oversight of the state's parole board, which, according to prisoners, their families, and prison justice advocates, has all but ceased granting parole. The prison system reduced food to two cold meals a day when the strike was called. The prison administration claims this is in response to the strike-induced labor shortage, but prisoners feel it is a tactic to starve out the strikers and the strike. The United States has by far the world's largest jail and prison population, with an estimated 2 million people in various places of incarceration at any one time, and an estimated 10 million individual turns, or churn, through the system in any given year, according to March 2022 estimates by the Prison Policy Institute. Alabama's system is particularly notorious. In 2020, the U.S. Department of Justice took the unusual step of declaring the state system in violation of the Constitution's Eighth Amendment prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment. No one, not even Alabama prison officials, have claimed conditions have improved since the federal ruling, however. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which outlaws slavery, notoriously contains an exception for prison labor. And in fact, there are some prisoners in Alabama who are not paid a penny for their work. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. And now here's Carol Widell with our Statistic of the Week. This week's statistic is 12.2%. The purchasing power of the federal minimum wage has fallen by 12.2% or almost one-eighth in the last two years. Every year that the minimum wage's value is not raised, it is effectively cut in inflation-adjusted terms. Over a longer period between January 1981 and April 1990, the minimum wage was cut 46%. This analysis by Josh Bevins is from the Working Economic Blog of the Economic Policy Institute. According to Bevins, if we are going to start looking at income sources that need to be restrained to keep inflation in check, We should look to corporate profits, not the wages of America's lowest paid workers. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Thank you for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Anna Ham. Thanks to editors Frank Emspack and Ellen LaLuzerne, assistant Robin G, reporters Mike Bernhard, Greg Jabowski, Sean Hagerup, Scott, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, Carol Wydell, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, web poster Anu Lee, and to all our readers and members of the IBEW Local 2304-WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Jim Coonan. We would also like to thank all the generous contributors to Liber Radio and WORT, Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and Professor Bill Clark. Party on. Oh, yeah. Listen to me.